it's good to see you this morning. Uh, after uh, about a week of as miserable weather as we could hope for, the Lord has given us a beautiful weekend. Maybe it's a little chilly for some, but uh, it's also sunny for all, and uh, we're glad that you've come today. And if you're here uh, as a visiting family, we're especially delighted that you've chosen to come and worship with us. I'm, I got to tell you that if you picked a bad weekend, probably I'm preaching today. <laughs> so do come back again when things are normal, whatever that is. But we're glad that you you've come with us uh, today. And if you were here last week, uh, you remember that that the youth had charge of the service, did a great job. Uh, Chris Hoffman started it off with what I dubbed the Chris Cruise. Uh, he took us down memory lane to all the years that he's worked with the youth. And he singled out just about every family that had youth that were part of uh, his years of, of ministry. And... Uh, I first thought, I said, Lord, why am I not upset? Why uh, am, am I not um, feeling lonely and left out and, and unimportant? And then the Lord spoke to me and said, you ought to feel blessed and fortunate that he didn't bring your name up. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I really do. Uh, but uh, again, I, I commend the youth for... Uh, the music, to the ministry of the Word, uh, and as the old cigar-smoking Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, he said, I never go into the pulpit without something humorous to say. And uh, I've adopted that philosophy, and sometimes the most humorous thing I can say is, I'm going to try to stop on time. <laughs> and that always brings the house down. And I'm looking to see if they installed that trap door yet. No, they, they haven't. Um, we're going to uh, have uh, a couple of people come and make some very important uh, announcements before we get started with our worship uh, and together. Uh, I do want to announce to you that our treasurer, Tom, uh, says that the matching fund of $50,000 that we've worked on uh, all during uh, the fall. Uh, as of December 31st, uh, we took in $59,799. Oh, okay. So we actually went almost $10,000 over. And so whoever um, provided the matching funds uh, you owe us $9,799. No, we'll leave that to the spirit uh, in your heart. But we do deeply appreciate uh, the 50 and the challenge that it gave to our people uh, to, to match it. But uh, it was a wonderful uh, uh, thing that the Lord uh, honored and blessed. And that money will help reduce our debt and get us debt-free much uh, sooner than, than otherwise. All right. Um, Bill White is going to come uh, 
and have something to say. And following Bill will be uh, Christy Russell, and then we'll move on. As y'all may know, uh, I'm involved with prison and jail ministry, and the Hoover Jail is one of the biggest ministries that we've got going right now. Uh, members from the choir went before Christmas and went carrying in the jail, had a huge impact on the inmates. But even more than that, then it, the teaching in there drives these guys to the word. And because we house about 46 federal inmates on a daily basis, we got our own church at Hoover Jail because they're there for an extended period of time. Because of that, they're consistent in coming and attending. But even more than that, as they attend, they grow word and they're looking for challenges. And if you look in your bulletin, uh, let's see, under prison ministry, and the reason I'm bringing it to your attention is because normally what I do is I take this bulletin, throw it in my Bible, and then throw it away when I get home uh, <clears throat> because I don't take time to read it. And there's some important stuff in here. But under prison ministry, there are two things. Uh, the persecuted thing for the persecuted church. And then also the fact that the prison ministry is in need of some coordinates. Uh, I had an inmate last week when I was in there preaching who asked for uh, a concordance because they want to get deeper into the word and be able to, to basically uh, grow their wisdom in the word. And also the other thing is if you happen to have you know, it's that time of year where you go to your house and you start cleaning stuff out. Uh, I went through my bookshelf and I've cleaned everything that I can find in there that I need to, to kind of donate. And I'm looking for books that are growth books that men incarcerated might be able to take and grow in, like The Making of a Man. And, and there's a lot of MacArthur and David Jeremiah books that I've given them. But if you have anything like that on your bookshelves that you don't need anymore, I would greatly appreciate it if you bring it to the church and leave it with Amanda or uh, because that would allow us to um, take those to the jail and allow these guys to grow in their worship and their relationship with the Lord. And uh, we would appreciate it. I'm going to turn it over to Christy. Hey, I um, told George I'd be quick. <laughs> um, I just wanted to talk to ladies for a few minutes. I don't know about y'all. But with Thanksgiving being later, I feel like everything is snuck up on me with Christmas and New Year's. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's January. All right. But I'm super excited about our 2020 year for the women's ministry. And I just wanted to remind you of a couple things in case you're not on Facebook. Don't read the bulletin or look at the slides. So we are having our fourth annual ladies mini conference. It will be January 24th and 25th. This conference is at no cost to you ladies. But I do ask that you sign up, and on the sign-up sheet, if you'll check if you're coming Friday and Saturday, so it's Friday night, and then we'll come back together Saturday morning until about right before lunch. If you're coming, if you're coming both nights, check both boxes. If you're just going to be here Friday night, we want you. If you're just going to be here Saturday morning, we still want you. Just let me know so we can have enough food, and there's going to be certain instructions for things you'll need to do or bring, depending on the nights you're coming, and I want to get you the correct information. Secondly, our first Bible study of the year is going to be on the book of Ruth, and I'm very excited to say one of our own members 
has written the study and is leading it, and it is excellent. So I hope, ladies, I always challenge you to attend one Bible study of the year. If you're only going to attend one, I would make it this one. It's going to be really great. We're going to start the Monday after the conference, which is January 27th. There's a sign-up sheet out there for that now, so we can have enough materials, books printed. But um, Alia Grubbs written is going to be leading it, and it's excellent. I'm so excited. Also, just looking ahead, February 21st, we are having a movie night, and that's all the information I'm going to give you at this point. But if you have any questions, please see me. We have a great team for this upcoming year with, with a lot of creativity and a lot of ideas, and I'm super excited. I'm telling you, if you've never been to one of our conferences, you don't want to miss this one. It's going to be a lot of fun and a great opportunity to get to know women in the congregation. So I hope you'll join us. Thanks. Good morning. It's probably not as important as what, uh, uh, what's your name again? Uh, Ron is planning uh, to do in just a moment. But they did want me to tell you, uh, for future reference, that starting today, our uh, electronic gurus in the back, uh, they say that starting today on our website, the service is being streamed live. So tell your friends and family, but if they want to watch the service broadcast live, they can go to the website and, and they can do that starting today. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing like being organized here. But um, you now told me about it going to streaming live. Now I'm a, I'm a, little, bit, a little bit nervous here. Um, no, good morning, y'all. Uh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord today and come to worship him and you know, we closed out the year last uh, last year in 2019, I thought with a bang. Um, you know, the choir had a program, which uh, I've heard so many comments from, from you guys about how it blessed your hearts, and, and it was just one of those things that the Lord put together, and he gave, us a, he gave us a full choir, and it was just a wonderful time together. And, and But what I wanted to do is I just want to thank you, because... When we, when we did that program that morning on December 15th, I believe it was, you know, I was kind of wondering how much you would participate in it because of the fact, you know, there were areas where, the, where, where you guys were supposed to sing along with us. So I was just kind of wondering, since I was directing the choir, whether or not you would really do it or you just kind of sit there and listen. But from what I understand, everybody participated, and it just ended up being just a great time. And the Lord just did a magnificent job with putting it all together. But I wanted to thank you for, for participating in that, and it made it that much better. And um, so, you know, it was, just a, it was just a wonderful time. And then I, I'm just so proud of what our young people are doing uh, as far as putting together their own worship groups and, and things like that. And we're looking forward to seeing them more and more. And uh, it, they're, they're going to do just a, a great job, and as well as the youth leaders are doing a great job as well. Uh, today, I just want us to concentrate on the fact, the fact, you know, we've just gone through Christmas. Jesus has come, and he's here, but he's the only one. He's the only one that we can turn to for salvation. That's the reason why he came. That's the reason why we celebrate Christmas and everything. So today, I just want us to, here's the first Sunday in, in uh, 2020, and I just want us to stand, and I want us to just lift high the name of Jesus, and let's just give him the praise that he's, he's due. Let's all stand, and let's sing, lift high the name of Jesus. 
receive it. Whiter than snow, yes, whiter than snow. Lord Jesus, make me whiter than snow. And we come to celebrate this morning and to worship a God who, a God of a universe that he created and somebody we can't even fathom, that we can't even look at, because he said no man can look at him and live. One man got close, but God controlled that. But this great God was the God who knows every single one of us. As we start this new year off, I just hope that we can come together and we can worship him and know that he is that great God. That great God knew that there was nothing, nothing we could do, nothing we could do ourselves, no matter how many times you go to church, no how much money you give or whatever, nothing we could do could save our souls from the eternal hell that we were facing because all of us are sinners. And he sent his only son, his most prized possession, to come and be the only one, the only perfect one that could die for my sins, your sins. Jesus was the only one. And when the world tries to pull together all different kind of philosophies and all different reasons why they're going to go to heaven for this reason and for that reason, we know because of God's word and what God has said, that there is only one way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father except by me. And we stand on that. and We rest on that because Jesus is the one and the only. I'd like for you all to continue worshiping with us as the choir sings, Jesus Saves.
and praise God, and I'm so glad that he decided to do it that way. <laughs> Jesus says, let's have a word of prayer as the choir comes down. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I just want to thank you and praise you this morning as we come worshiping this mighty God who has provided a way of salvation for each and every one of us. Lord, only through your grace and only through your mercy have you done this. Lord, we are not deserving at all. But God, we just want to thank you and praise you for that. And with that, Lord, we just want to come declaring to, to you and declaring to the congregation, to declaring to the world, Lord, that you and only you, Jesus saves. And the only way to salvation is through you, Lord. I just praise you for that and thank you. God, I just ask you that you would just open our hearts, Father, allow your spirit to dwell in us, to come and fill us, Lord, as we come and worship. Father, I pray for George as he comes and brings the message that you have given him right now. And Lord, just teach us and guide us and help us, Lord, to worship you and you alone this morning. Father, get rid of everything that's in our minds, everything that we're thinking about, everything from last week, anything coming from, forward from this week. God, we just pray that you would just open up our minds to your word and your word only. Father, thank you again for this time. Be with us now. These things are asked in your name. Amen. I'll give you a very quick update on our pastor. If you don't already know, he's progressing uh, very well. And if you're watching us today, Pastor Dad, uh, we miss you. And we're all praying for you to have a full recovery and to come back and uh, allow me to finally take my retirement. It got canceled uh, in the wee hours of the 31st of December. But that's all right. I don't mind. With these new rails, I don't mind coming up here at all. Uh, I'll, I'll do it as often as you want. It's really, really uh, nice, and uh, it's a blessing. Back in the days when my wife and I were in Dallas, we attended uh, First Baptist Church of downtown Dallas, as Dr. Criswell would say. And he would start every sermon looking into the camera and saying, on TV and radio and live here at the campus of, of our church, you are watching the services of the First Baptist Church downtown Dallas. And this is the pastor bringing the message. And then he would just take off, no notes, just his Bible and that red light. And uh, for years, we just were enthralled to listen to him open the word of God to our hearts. And so um, uh, we welcome you, those of you who are watching this uh, web website, and those of you who are standing outside the door, and those of you who are sitting uh, in this room together. Uh, we welcome all of you uh, to an opportunity to open God's word. I want to begin by reading a passage, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, 
And I'm going to let you remain seated if, if that's okay. We, that's not a sacrilege, but we do honor God's Word. That's why we read it. That's why we teach it. But I'm going to read uh, beginning uh, in chapter 5 of the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's toward the end of the New Testament after you get past uh, Titus and Philemon and those guys. Uh, if you get to uh, James, you've gone far. But in chapter 5 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 11, uh, the writer says, Concerning him, and that pronoun him is a reference to uh, our Savior uh, and his role as a royal priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now that was something that was just blowing the circuits of the writer's audience. They didn't understand that at all. They were deeply entrenched with the, the knowledge of the Levitical priesthood that was a part of the law. But Jesus is being linked to something they've never heard about before, the Melchizedekian priesthood. Concerning him, we have much to say. And I can just almost sense the, the mind of the writer. We don't know who he is. He was probably the Apostle Paul. But we're not supposed to know that. And that was because the focus of the book is not on who wrote it. The focus on the book is who he wrote about. It's, the, it's Christ himself who is the, the theme of the whole book of Hebrews. And he's presented in his superiority. There is no one like him. He's greater than all the revealers. He's greater than all the priests. He's greater even than people like Moses who received the law uh, on top of the mount. Jesus is, is superior in every way, shape, and form to whatever preceded him. And by the way, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then this is who your Savior is. Uh, he came as a revealer, a prophet. He went to the cross as a redeemer. He's currently a priest in heaven, our priest, interceding for us. And one day he's coming back to take the throne of David, to be the Messiah of Israel, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And if that's not glorious enough, we shall come with him, and we shall reign with him as the bride of Christ, the living church, the body of believers from all the continents of the earth who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son of God who came on a mission to redeem us from our sin. And so he says, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, 
leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. The thorns and thistles will burn, not the ground. It's what the ground produces. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You don't hear about it much anymore, but do you remember the days of the Rubik's Cube? I mean, everybody had one, it seemed like. And I used to just hate to watch people who could, you know, they'd hand it to you. It, it's, it's not that easy. I don't know if they had a special one that was loaded, like dice or something, but I could twist that thing for a week and get so close. And then finally, I get this side to be perfect, but now this side has got a problem. And then I work on that one, but now this one is no longer what it's supposed to be. And it would, just, it would just frustrate me to no end because uh, it just didn't seem to, to, to fit. Each side was so different. How do you get them all to cooperate and to do what it's supposed to do? That guy, Rubik, he must have been demonic. Uh, he had, that's a wasted life if that's what his life produced, the Rubik's Cube. Sometimes theology is that way. Sometimes it seems like when we're reading and studying Scripture, no matter what we try to do, we can't get it all to come together the way that we think God intended to be understood. And as we come this morning to this passage in Hebrews 6, uh, it's an illustration that among theologians, they have a hard time fitting it and harmonizing all the pieces in the place where they ought to go. As a matter of fact, and I forgot I had this, this Santa Claus brought me this. Uh, I need to turn it on. I still need to turn it on. Well, I, I got a picture. This is a different sermon. Huh? Oh, there we go. I gave a title to the sermon, and I stole it from the text, Falling Away. But uh, Hebrews 6, there are so many different interpretations. There are so many ways good theologians 
try to, to harmonize and put the pieces together. And I'm just amazed at how many different interpretations there are. Uh, a guy named David Levy, who's a, a good expositor of the word, he says, this passage has been misunderstood and misinterpreted and misapplied, and it rates among one of the most controversial texts in the New Testament. And then he shares with us the predominant views of interpretation that he has discovered. And the first one is that some people say that these people that the writer's addressing, they've lost their salvation. They've fallen away. They're lost now. I'm glad that if you want to take that interpretation and, and base it from this text, this text says that you only can get lost one time because it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, they don't want to hear that. They want to preach that, well, you can lose salvation, but then you can get straightened out and you can get it back, but then you can lose it again and you can get it back and as many times as, as you have years to live. But that goes against what everything else in Scripture tells us. We know that our salvation is secure, mainly because it has nothing to do with what we do. Our salvation was determined by what Christ did alone at Calvary. It's offered to every one of us as a gift to accept or to reject. But if there's nothing you can do to merit salvation, then it has to be just as true that there's nothing you can do to forfeit salvation. That would make it a salvation based on works. And the scriptures clearly teach us salvation is by grace, not of ourselves. We can't boast about what we do. We ought to be boasting about what he did. He loved us enough to come and take our place on the cross and endure the full measure of all the judgment that was owed to a righteous and holy God. And Jesus said, it is finished. Paid in full. And he went to the ground, buried in the tomb, and on the third day came forth alive. That was evidence from God that I accepted what he did to be the full measure of the payment of sin for all of us. But some people insist that this is talking about people losing their salvation. Others say these people are professing believers who never possessed salvation. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk, so to speak. Uh, and... Uh, there's probably a little bit of truth to that. There are some people that go around parading themselves to be believers, but they've never been born again. They're just religious. Others say this is a hypothetical situation that could never really happen. And if you're going to take that view, then why even read it? Why even study it? If it's hypothetical and it can never happen, then of what value is it? Uh, this is something that can really happen, we're going to discover. From this text. Others say those who receive enlightenment about salvation and they tasted the heavenly gift and they became partakers of the Holy Spirit never received Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we're going to see that, uh, that that doesn't fit because those terms are terms that are always used to describe people who are genuinely born again. Fifthly, some people say that these are saved people who lost their rewards. 
Now, there's some truth to that as well, but that doesn't fully explain what's going on. And then there's a sixth one. These are saved people being exhorted to mature in Christ. And I think of all the options, that's the one that allows us to twist all the verses and bring them in harmony with each other. And the message that the writer is trying to give to us this morning is that he wants, God wants his people to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are born again. And as a believer, they start out as a spiritual infant. But they're not being fed properly, and they're not being taught. So they're not growing. And you can imagine how, what a sight it would be if we had grown-up people uh, right here this morning who are wearing diapers. And, man, I want some milk. That doesn't fit, man. You, you, know, you need to go get a, a, a hamburger or a, one of my concoctions from Thanksgiving, the blessing sandwich, where you start with a piece of French bread, and then you put uh, smoked turkey, and then you put eggplant casserole with shrimp, and then you put honey-baked ham, and then you put cornbread dressing, and then top it off with uh, cranberry sauce. You don't need mayonnaise, mustard, any of that. You've got what you need. And then it gets about that thick. And then you smash it a little bit. And then every bite of that sandwich, you're getting smoked turkey. You're getting uh, eggplant casserole with shrimp, heavy on the shrimp. You're getting honey-baked ham. You're getting cornbread dressing. And you're getting uh, the cranberry sauce, yeah. And every bite, and I'm watching everybody else, and they got to, oh, here's some turkey. Mm. Here's some eggplant casserole with shrimp. Mm, that's good. Oh, honey-baked ham. Mm, that's good. You know, and they're having to eat them one at a time. Every bite, I'm getting all of it. And looked at me like I was crazy. Maybe so. But we're going to see that that's what the author is trying to tell us. And I read the last four or five verses of chapter 5 as a lead-in to chapter 6 because that uh, is, is really the, the key. Uh, the key to understanding chapter 6 is to make sure you understand chapter 5, verses 11 to 14 because that passage is talking about what we'll call retrogression. It describes a believer who, who instead of growing in Christ, maturing in Christ, he's going back the other way. He's, he's retrogressing back to the state of, of infancy where you can no longer eat solid food. You'd rather have milk. You'd rather have something that's, that's pre-digested. Uh, I can summarize chapter 5, verses 11 and 14. By in chapter 11, verse 11, the writer said, You have become dull of hearing. You have become. That grammatically means that you are now in a state that you didn't used to be in. You started growing. And you had alertness. And you could comprehend. And you had hunger. You couldn't wait for the next time to eat. 
the meat of the word. So you're studying the scriptures and you're reading the scriptures and you're coming to a church that teaches the scriptures and you go into small groups and you go into Bible studies because you just love how the word of God nourishes your soul and helps you deal with the realities of life. It's sad for people that don't know Christ that have to deal with great crises. Can you imagine? What do you do? You turn to the world. What kind of help can you give me? Well, this psychologist says this, and this one says this and that, and it's a smorgasbord. We have the blessing of God's Word, which never changes. At least it shouldn't. And it speaks to everything that's going on in our lives in one way or another. But he says, you've become dove hearing. That means you've retrogressed. Verse 12, you have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You had already learned that. And instead of building on that and growing, you've forgotten what you've learned. And you've got to go back to square one, retrogression. Verse 12, you have come to need milk and not solid food. That's not the way it's supposed to go in the physical world. We start out with milk, but then we grow to soft foods and all the smashed up vegetables that they all end up looking green for some reason. I don't know. And eventually you get some teeth and you can start having a hamburger and a Milo's and, and then you can have pizza and, and then you can finally have a nice sirloin steak. Uh, or uh, one of my blessing sections. <laughs> uh, I really got to think those things. That, that's the best sandwich I ever ate. It really was. But retrogression. You used to be able to apply the word to regulate your conduct, but you can no longer do it. The word used to be important to you, and it helps you make decisions, ethical decisions, moral decisions. And now you don't even think about what the Word says. You just go with the crowd. I used to ask uh, uh, my son who's now with the Lord, I said, son, why did you do that? And he said, well, everybody else was doing it. Well, well, did you think about what God said about it? Well, yeah, I forgot that. I I, I remember, but I, I just, I was thinking, you know, I was more, more turned, turned into what, what do they say? Instead of what does he say? But in verse uh, verses of eleven to fourteen, the writer says, "I want to give you information about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and this is going to blow your socks off." But I can't do it because you have become dull of hearing. You have to go back to the ABCs instead of going into the the meat of, of God's word. You have come to need milk. You, you need a baby bottle instead of a stick and a baked potato. You used to be able not only to know it, you used to be able to, to apply it to others. It regulated your conduct. You could go tell somebody else. You used to be able to teach. You had reached that level where you could teach God's word to somebody else. And now somebody needs to come and teach you all over again. 
retrogression. These people are retrogressing. And he's basing that on the fact that they want to go back to the, to the temple. They want to go back and be a part of the Old Testament system that has been annulled at the cross. Christ annulled the law. It had its purpose. It served its purpose. It showed Israel that you are sinful and you will never merit God's righteousness. Well, then God, how are we going to get it? By faith. When you believe in Christ, who has taken your sin and paid the penalty on the cross, when you believe, he then gives you his righteousness. The very righteousness that God says you must have if you want to spend eternity with me. That's called imputation. Theologians call it imputation. Our sins are imputed to Christ on the cross and he paid the penalty. And then his righteousness is imputed to the believer the moment he believes and says, I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and he died for me. He died for my sins. You used to be able to teach other people. Not now. You have retrogressed. A couple of uh, quotes. James Draper uh, used to be the associate pastor at First Baptist Church Dallas. And he eventually became president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's written a, an excellent commentary on, on the book of Hebrews. But he says, we cannot be perfected in something if we have never begun it. This passage cannot refer to those who have not been saved, although some interpreters believe that's the case. Based on the context, the writer of Hebrews is concerned with Christians. Christians who are not growing they're not moving to maturity. They're retrogressing. Because instead of trusting the Lord to care for them during their, their difficulties, the persecutions they were enduring in that first generation, they're wanting to go back and re-identify with the very people who crucified our Savior. And they want to go back and buddy up to them, thinking, well, that'll stop them from persecuting us. They'll say, well, y'all aren't really that bad. But they're not thinking about how that affects their, their, their fellowship with God and how it affects their ability to grow spiritually, to go from infancy to maturity. Every new believer starts out in infancy, and it's God's desire that we grow to maturity. Uh, another quote is by a guy that you probably never heard of, Philip Eskom Hees. He's a, a Brit. And his name sounds like he's in line to, king of, to the throne of England, but he wasn't. He was, he was going to share the, the kingdom of Christ uh, in heaven, and he's there now. But he says concerning these verses, One who is so unadvanced that he needs to be introduced once more to the ABCs of the faith is no better than a child in spiritual understanding. Milk is the only diet suited to his immature condition not the solid food of sound Christian doctrine. To go on living on milk, mere baby food, is indicative of arrested development. And the recipients of this letter have evidently failed to advance beyond or have relapsed. That's what I would call retrogression. They have relapsed into a state of spiritual infancy. 
Instead of being strong and well-developed, they are weaklings in the faith. That's a pretty vivid description of the problem that the writer is trying to uh, address. By the way, uh, in those verses, he gives us three essentials for spiritual growth. Number one, solid food. You can't live on milk forever. Uh, Show me a 45-year-old man who only drinks milk, and I'll show you a man who probably is underdeveloped in a lot of ways. Secondly, you need consistent practice. You've got to take what you know and put it into action. Use it or lose it. I studied a, a lot of years, a lot of hours during my years at Dallas. Uh, your first year, you start out with Greek. And that was, man, that, that was really a, a game changer for me. When I filled out my application, it said, have you had any foreign language training? I had 12 years. And Dr. Pentecost says, you know, that's why we accepted you. Then we find out that your 12 years is English. And I said, well, it was foreign to me. <laughs> but you start out with Greek. And you can't learn any language unless you're comparing it to the language you know. And if you're not sure you know your own language, then trying to learn another language and understand what an adverb is and what a the different tenses and all that. But the first year, four days a week, Tuesday through Friday, you're having Greek along with all the rest of it. Your second year, they figure now you're proficient to start doing exegetical work in Greek. So we'll start you out with Hebrew. So now you're continuing your Greek your second year, but they're starting you with Hebrew. And, And... if, you, if you've ever looked at Hebrew texts, it goes from right to left instead of left to right. And it's basically a lot of symbols. I mean, a two-year-old could write Hebrew and understand it, but he's making the same kind of jib- gibberish that, that's in the Hebrew text. I mean, it's a foreign language, no pun intended, to if you have a Western mind. You've got to rethink Semitic. You've got to put yourself over there and how they think and then how they write. And then what all this stuff means. So having done that, as as I left seminary, I just found it harder and harder to keep up with the proficiency of the Hebrew. And it it, it got to where I couldn't do what I used to be able to do. I would have to consult lexicons, and I would have to consult uh, proven theologians who have written down what they've learned from the Hebrew text and all that. It was a little better with Greek. I could still use my Greek and and still use it all these years later. But it's use it or lose it. That's the way it is with a lot of things we know. And a maturing Christian has to be able to practice what they're learning, put it into action. And then thirdly, discernment. Maturity is the ability to judge between good and evil. There are a lot of people today, when you ask them, why'd you do that? I don't know. Well, you didn't, you didn't realize that was bad? No, I, I, you know, I didn't know that was bad. You don't know murder's bad? You know? uh, that, that's supposed to be a joke. But there are some people that probably would say, well, no, I'm really not sure. Uh, God wants us to grow. He wants us to move 
forward. Well, having said all that, let me give you one more quote. Dr. Pentecost says that this exhortation implies that they are babies. They would not be considered babies unless they had evidenced life. In other words, they're saved. They're genuine believers. Thus, their need is not knowledge. Rather, they need to use the knowledge that they possess. Their neglect of the word has caused them to lapse into dullness or to regress into a state of spiritual infancy. And that's why he can't tell them about Melchizedek right now. They're not able to understand it. They're stuck in the ABCs uh, of uh, their Christian experience. And so we move into chapter 6. Pressing on is the theme of, of uh, the first few verses. The writer says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again, I think I have it, yeah, not laying again the foundation of repentance from deed, from dead works, and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we shall do. The writer is confident that you can reverse this. These people can change. They can get back on the track to growing in Christ. And with growth, there comes blessing. In retrogression, there are no blessings. God does not bless when we are moving backwards and going back from where we started. He wants us to go forward. To be, uh, The King James text uh, uh, translates uh, uh, going on to uh, maturity. They, they, they say perfection. And in that, time, in that day and age, in, in the 17th century, perfection had, could be translated as maturity, completeness. To be what you can be. To get where God wants you to go. To be a vessel that God can not only bless for who you are, but to bless what you do. To bring glory to his name. And so, uh, he's saying that you must leave the elementary teachings. Now, um, verse 4 uh, is... Uh, we, we come to verse 4, and there's an explanatory. He says, For in case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partaker of the Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, he's describing these people who are believers because these things are things that are said about uh, believers. Uh, why the warning? Why does he want to warn them uh, in chapter 6 of Hebrews? Well, it's because either ignoring or neglecting truth will produce retrogression. You know, they say that a shark must always be moving or he'll die. He can't just sit, sit still. He doesn't sit, but whatever he does. He has to be moving so that the water going into his body through his gills brings oxygen and the nutrients that he supplements when he's not biting the leg off of a swimmer or something. Why do we want to give sharks 
the same rights we have. They are reptile creatures. They, they go by instinct, and they like to eat anything they can put in their mouth. And I've always thought the only good shark is a dead shark. We went out fishing the Gulf a few years ago, a church, a group of men from the church, and we caught about an eight-foot shark. Wasn't trying to, but he took the bait. And when we finally got him to the boat, I, I suggested we just cut the line. And the, the captain said, no, no, that's good eating. Where are you going to put him? Don't put him where I'm standing. And they, he said, well, we'll tie him to the back of the boat, you know, where, where it's, it's written the name of the boat. And when we finally headed home, three and a half hour ride, that, that shark is just flapping against the back of the boat. And their skin is like sandpaper. And when we got into the dock, we got out of the boat and he backed the boat in and the name of the boat was gone. And I, you know, we said, that was your idea, not, not our idea. We're not paying for that. And after they weighed it and took a picture of him, they put him on a table, and the mate took his knife and got it in his gut and just went down the line and opened him up, and 11 little small ones slithered out onto the, onto the table. And so we told everybody we caught 12 sharks that day. <laughs> oh, but the, they, the, I guess you could argue they're magnificent eating machines, but uh, we need to keep them away from us. I wish we could get them out of the Gulf of Mexico. And people in, in Destin would be a lot happier and people everywhere else as well. But why the warning? Because if you ignore or neglect the truth that God has given to you, it will have the effect of you're moving backwards. You'll start retrogressing instead of progressing and that's going to create problems. You can't become spiritually mature if you're going backwards. It's just not possible. And there's another question that needs to be answered. What does the writer want? He wants for them to leave the elementary teaching about the Christ and press on to maturity. King James, perfection. Maturity, completion. To be all that God can, can allow you to be as you grow according to his grace. Um, I, I didn't see it really for, for a long while. And suddenly looking at it, one of the Rubik's Cubes went to the right spot. I thought, ah! And everything they knew up to that time basically was elementary things. And there's nothing wrong with the elementary things. But you can't live your life with the elementary things. That's a foundation, and you've got to build on it, and you've got to grow. You've got to move forward in your understanding and in your resolve to, to walk with the Lord and, and to love him and obey him and all of these things. And uh, he viewed them as wanting to, to be satisfied with, with milk. The elementary things, not bad things, but, but just elementary things. And a part of the meat that he wanted to give them was the knowledge of the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to whet your appetite for that if you've never studied that. 
it's just one of the, the crown jewels uh, about the life of Christ. What they know about Jesus was, was what he did at his first coming. They know virtually nothing about what he's doing now after his resurrection and ascension back to heaven. He's now acting as the great high priest of heaven. But not based on the Levitical priesthood, he couldn't qualify for that. He was a Judean. And there were thousands of Levitical priests. They came, they served, they went. There's only one priest in the order of Melchizedek. It is Christ. And how did he attain to that? Well, that's for another subject. No, I'll tell you. They attain, he attained to that by his resurrection from the dead. To become a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, you have to have an indestructible life in terms of physical. And Christ attained to that at his resurrection. He has a glorified body, never again to be subject to mortality. One day we'll have a glorified body, never again to be subject to mortality. And today we live in uh, a situation where we have an earthly body that is tainted by sin, but yet there's a new man living in there who is born again by the grace of God. And he wants us to strive in our mortality to attain to the righteousness that we have in our standing before God, our standing that gives us the guarantee of eternal life with him. <clears throat> this is something that I wanted you to, to know, but I, I wrote it out so that I, I wouldn't forget anything. There's a major distinction between salvation and maturity. Salvation is an act. It happens the very moment you put your trust in Christ. The moment you take your basket with all the things you're trusting and you dump them and you say, I'm going to put Christ in my basket. It is he and he alone who can deliver me from the guilt of my sin. It is he and he alone who can make my life meaningful. It is he and he alone who can allow me to mature in the grace and knowledge of him and to serve him. It is he who makes it possible that one day at the judgment seat of Christ, he will evaluate what I've done with my life as a believer. And I'll be rewarded for the things that brought glory and honor to him. Paul says that the people who did nothing, they just lived their life as spiritual babies. They never grew up what they could have been. There's nothing that they can be rewarded for. They'll be there but they'll have no reward. Paul uses the analogy that some works will be like gold, silver, and, and, and precious stones. You put fire to them, it doesn't hurt them, it purifies them. But if you put fire to wood, hay, and stubble, it's gone. It, it can't endure. And that's the analogy. One day you'll stand before Christ as a believer, and he'll say, let's put fire to what you've done to see if it's gold, of silver and precious metal, or if it's wood, hay, and stubble. If it's gold, precious metal, and silver, you'll be rewarded. If it's 
The other is nothing, no reward. <clears throat> um, I didn't, let me finish this. Salvation is an act where God declares righteous those who believe, trust in Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? Well, you have to know his person and his work. You can't just trust in any Jesus. There's a guy that works at the Mexican restaurant. And I said, what's your name, buddy? He said, Jesus. Well, that's Spanish for Jesus. Don't put your trust in him. Matter of fact, he couldn't even bring me what I ordered. He didn't even get my order right, much less save me. There's only one Jesus who can save you, the Christ of history, the Christ who became the incarnate Son of God at Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, the Christ that grew up to be the man Christ Jesus, who, who proclaimed himself to be the Messiah of Israel, the one to whom John said, I must decrease that he may increase, and the one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world. The, the crucifixion, I mean, the, 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 the slaying of animals and the shedding of animal blood on the altars, it didn't take away sin. It only postponed the judgment of sin until the Lamb of God finally came. And now sin has been dealt with once and for all. That's the Jesus that we put our trust in. Jesus who promises to come back and take us to be with him. The Jesus who will rule and reign on the earth in fulfillment of all promises about the son of David ruling over all the earth. It'll, it'll last a thousand years of mortality. But then we'll go into eternity for the rest of what eternity is. Uh, on the other hand, maturity is a process. It's a process that spans the believer's life who through obedience to the word of God and spirit of God is being transformed in his attitudes and actions into the likeness of God's character and righteousness, which is sanctification. My dad had a good friend from the days he worked at a candy factory named Grant Pelisay. It doesn't The spelling of it isn't that way, but that's the way it's pronounced. And he worked at Elmer's Candy Company with my dad. Um, one day my dad told him uh, his testimony. He told him wh who, what he was like when he went into the Navy during World War II and the things he did with his buddies, uh, the, the drinking, the carousing. I mean, it, you know, they, it, it, it could be a sordid story. A lot of those guys thought, well, I'm never going home. I've only got a little time to live. I'm going to live it up. My dad came back from the war as a pagan. And for some reason, mother married him. And nine months to the day of their marriage, my sister and I were born. They had no idea she was having twins. They were trying to get over the fact that we're going to have one nine months from, the, from our wedding. And the doctor eventually said, there's a second one. Well, my mother told me, she said, there's another one in there. No, no, you're just feeling all the pressure of that pushing you did. She says, no, there's another one in there. Twenty minutes later, my second mother came out. She's my twin sister, but she's my second mother. 
And to this day, she still tries to tell me what to do. Uh, but um, they started, started a family with two little babies. They didn't have enough to take care of, to pay the rent and to, to have an automobile and to buy food and groceries. It was difficult. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of it, but it was true poverty. And uh, eventually my mother just knew that the thing was going to fall apart. So she decided this next Sunday, I'm taking my twins and I'm going to church where there are Christians. And I'm going to ask the Lord to, to, to help us. And God directed her to a lady who became a lifetime friend. They were so close that we only knew her as Aunt Falba. She had no blood relationship to us, but she was Aunt Falba. That's how close they were. And because she went to that church, they started coming. One man in particular, Mike Michael, he would come, and he met my dad. And my dad just, oh, he couldn't stand the idea that, why do you let these people come? See, because it was just a, a light shining on him that showed him just how how deep in sin he was and how hopeless he was to save himself. And this man kept coming back, and Dad would insult him, Dad would curse him, Dad would make fun of him, but he would come and he'd bring milk for my sister and I. He'd come and he'd bring a top coat for my dad because he noticed he didn't have one for the, for the winter. And probably the final insult was that one day Dad took a can of beer and just poured it over his head. He said, now you think God still loves me? Do you still love me? Mike Michael wiped his brow and said, yeah, G. That was his nickname, G. Yeah, G, God loves you, and I love you, and I'll be back. And after another week or two, my dad just dropped to his knees and said, oh, God, save me. I'm a reprobate. I don't deserve anything, but I can't live any longer fighting you. And... He knew so little, but he knew that Jesus was the Son of God who went to the cross and died for his sins. And he said, I'm not going to trust anything except you. I'm trusting you to save me, and I'm trusting you to take care of me and my family. And God provided. And my dad told that story to his buddy Grant. And Grant said, well, you're not like that, G." You're not like what you describe. He said, you're right, Grant. I'm not. I used to be. Well, what made the difference? Christ. Christ made the difference. And that's maturity, moving toward Christ, wanting to know more about him, learning about him, learning to share your faith and tell others. You know, they, they can refute miracles and all that. They can't refute what happened to you. I once was blind, but now I see. We sing. Uh, I once was a beggar, and now I'm a child of the king. I, I once did this, but now I'm this. My dad turned away from all the things that were destroying his life and his marriage, and he lived the rest of his life until he was 64 years old, honoring Christ every day, walking he was like a sponge. He would go to Bible conferences in Biloxi, Gulfport, Mississippi. He never missed the church service. And he listened to it on radio and television. Anywhere he could get good people teaching him about the scriptures and about Christ. And he grew. And he grew. 
And now he's with the Lord and God's going to take care of the rest from that point on. My time is gone and we've just barely gotten into chapter 6. I anticipated that. Um, I got 17 more pages of notes. No, <laughs> not that many. But um, I'm going to have to come back another time soon. And since I'm back on the job, it'll probably be sooner than later. Won't it? And we'll have to keep going and look, look at the rest of this because it's a wonderful, wonderful story of what God has done for you as a believer. And that's a motivation for you not to retrogress back into what you used to be, but to keep going forward to see what God can make of you if you will just obey and walk by faith, trust God in each and every circumstance that comes into our life. Father, I'm sorry that I wasn't able to put it all together in the, the time allotted but I, I thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to talk about you and to talk about this issue of maturing in Christ, how important it is. It not only brings us blessings now, but it's the foundation of the blessing. You do that, and then you come and talk to me if you're here today, or talk to any one of our, our men, and tell somebody what you've done today so that we can help you as you begin your journey of maturing in Christ Jesus, and it's in his name that I pray, amen. Please sing along with us. Jesus, draw me ever nearer as I labor through the storm. You have called me to this path. This journey bring a blessing. May I rise on wings of faith. 
Jesus guided through the tempest. Keep my spirit stayed and sure. When the midnight meets the morning, let treasures of the trial form within me as I go and at the end of this long passage let me leave them at your throne may this journey 